This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Nomen est Stella at Hawk est Backerel the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 174 for May MMXIX. Backerel the Oracle is brought to you by What is Council of Geeks? Well, despite the name, it's actually just one kind of pretentious guy on YouTube who rants at camera a lot and just goes on and on about things like Doctor Who and Marvel movies and Star Wars and... I meant, once the Council of Geeks podcast feed? Oh, that. Well, it kind of depends on when it is you're looking at it. What does that mean? Well, it's been a lot of things at a lot of different times. Originally, it was just longer versions of roundtable talks that uh, the guy who runs the thing used to have. It was the home of 90s Comics Retrial for a while. Oh, I liked that show. Yeah, but, you know, then he did Executioner's Song and it broke him, so he doesn't do that anymore either. 
Oh. There was Go Home Hollywood, You're Drunk. Winner of the Relatively Geeky Networks Award for Best New Podcast in 2017? Yep, that's the one. That's over too. His co-host had a kid and, well, he didn't bother ever trying to find somebody else. Oh. So what is it now? Well, at the moment, it is home to see a space cowboy, where he is just going back through Cowboy Bebop and uh, taking it one episode at a time, putting his thoughts up after not having seen the thing in about 15 years. Okay. Well, what will it be after he's done with that? Stick around, and maybe you'll find out what's next. Or catch up on the old stuff. It's still there. This is a very strange promotion. Yeah, well, he's a strange guy. Backworld Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out Mile High Comics. Well, it is always a privilege to have special guests on my show. And the great thing about doing a Barbara Gordon podcast is I get to interview wonderful people who write about her and write on that book. And I did not get to interview this guest at San Diego Comic-Con, but I heard from my friends just how excited she was. So I thought, okay, well, excitement's always good going into the book. So now, you know, better late than never as her tenure is coming to a close on Batgirl, we have Mayor Grid Scott. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. It's a real pleasure. Oh, yes. Hopefully you'll say that at the end of this episode, too. <laughs> I was looking at your bio a little bit on your webpage, and I thought to myself, you know, this, and I mean this with all the positivity and love in the world, this person is a nerd's nerd. Because just of the the things that you're saying, there's this quote as as well as semi-legit knowledge. You've got Star Wars Expanded Universe. I'm like, yes, that's awesome. Kill the Kill. Not many people mention Kill the Kill, and that's an anime that I really love. The Alien franchise, PS3. I mean, I just thought, you know, if I were around this person and knew her in real life, I think we'd be good friends. Yeah, it's a... uh, it's a wonderful time to be a nerd. Uh, and I have a particular, I always like to say that um, if it's not at all useful, I probably know it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, in the past couple years, you know, the, the stigma of being a nerd has washed away. And it's certainly more celebrated now than it was even 10 years ago, where it was like, oh, why are you reading comics? Why are you a girl in the comic book store? Have you seen this change as well? Because you're really in the thick of things being a writer. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I remember uh, when I went to college in New York, um, the first comic book store I went into, the owner followed me through the store, um, just kind of, and then asked me why I was there. And I was like, well, I guess this isn't going to be my new comic book store. Um, (laughs) I'll have to find another. Um, No, I mean, things have changed a lot. And, you know, I mean... I definitely had that. Uh, here's some obscure references. I definitely had that last unicorn moment when I saw mm. Force Awakens of like, why have you come to me now? <laughs> like, but uh, but it's great. And it's it's really great as a writer to be there on that edge when, you know, sort of this this world that we've all loved is opening up to so many people and seeing those new people coming to it and finding it and and just uh 
spreading the gospel of the bat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And what a privilege you have to have such a great character to be able to write. Oh, yeah. Barbara Gordon is super cool. <laughs> so I want to talk about some of your origin stories. I always like to hear guests' comics origin stories. So what first got you into comics? Oh, yeah. Well, I uh, probably the cartoons. Um, when I was little, I watched like Batman the Animated Series and 90s X-Men. And I actually went down to, I remember being in, it must have been like elementary school and like going down to like the local comic book store, but it was the 90s and it was X-Men. So I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and it was like issue 347. Oh, yeah. And like, I knew that they, I didn't know which one was what. And like, I knew they came out every week. But I didn't know that they that each issue only came out once a month. And of course, you know, I, I'm like a little kid, so I was just painfully shy. So um I I ran away. Um <laughs> and <laughs> but then I started watching Sailor Moon and I remember I got really into the manga, much to my mother's chagrin, because mm. those things were like ten bucks a pop and you'd be done by the time you got home. Sure. Um, but I did reread them a lot. Uh, and I finally circled back around to Western comics in high school because um, my boyfriend, now husband, um, was very much into them. So the Marvel Ultimates universe uh, mm-hmm. totally worked and was a great jumping on point to get back into the uh, sort of the swing of things with uh, weekly floppies. Very cool. Weekly floppies. Um, <laughs> what, what's your writing origin story? How did you find yourself getting into writing? Well, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, I, I really wanted to, I thought I would write action movies. Um, and then I went to college to write movies and, and they didn't want me to, they wanted me to write film, capital F, um, and not movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but one of my professors said, well, you know, cartoons are just short action movies, right? And I was like, oh my God, you're right. And so I, I moved out to Los Angeles and I started writing cartoons um, I make it sound so easy, right? There was many years. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you move out and they hand you a cartoon. It's great. You just knock on the, like the pineapple at Nickelodeon. And, um, oh, wow. But they, uh, I really wanted to break into writing cartoons. And I really, I, I had just started on a show called Transformers Prime. Mm. And I also really wanted to write comics. And I'd built up like a bunch of different little samples and I'd shown them around and, uh, I'd gotten a little bit of traction and finally they wanted to do IDW wanted to do a comic book, but tied into the continuity of our show. And they had a writer, Mike Johnson, who offered to co-write with me because he knew I knew our show's continuity really well. And he knew I wanted to write comics. And so that was sort of my first big foot in the door. Besides the obvious, how different is it writing for the screen and writing comics? I always think of comics as like, the haiku of animation. Okay. You still want to go after these really powerful visuals. You know, you you don't want to just have people sitting around talking to each other Mm -hmm. as much as you can help it. Um, But at the same time, it's about learning to pull out the specific individual moments that suggest more action. Like when I first started writing, I would try and like beat out the fights like as if someone was going to draw the entire fight sequence, but it, the pacing is all wrong. It's it's about just finding those still images that suggest movement as opposed to an animation where you're always trying to write the characters in motion from one thing to the next. 
Very cool. So, of course, the most important question then is what is your Batgirl origin story, whether it's Barbara Gordon or another Batgirl? Well, I'm actually going to – I want you to know that I like all of the Batgirls. Okay. Um, <laughs> but but I, actually, I had a really soft spot um, because for Cassandra Cain. Oh. Um, when I first started reading comics, Cassandra Cain was Batgirl, and Cassandra Cain – um, because of her dad was from Detroit and I grew up right outside Detroit. And so, uh, I really identified with Cassandra Kane and, um, I was like, oh my gosh, like she's, she's so cool. And, uh, she's so like badass and, uh, she's from Detroit and I'm from Detroit. And so, yeah, so, and I really loved the arc at that time about her was really her sort of you know, being this master fighter and being sort of great at the bat part and not at the girl part and sort of mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to like live a normal life. And as an awkward nerd teenager right outside of Detroit, that really like appealed to me. Mm. So she was definitely sort of my number one um, Batgirl for a long time. She was actually the first character I ever cosplayed as, oh, which wow. is full face mask and everything. Um, which is not easy to see out of. <laughs> I imagine not. Yeah, you just uh, made my one of my dearest friends, Donovan, very happy. That's his like number one favorite character. So he'll be very excited to hear that. Um, but yeah, but I I knew Barbara from my first introduction to her was in the animated series, um, which I really liked her. I have to say I liked her a little bit more in sort of the original animated series, like not the one where they kind of revamped it after they. Because remember, there's Batman the animated series, and then Superman came out, and there's kind of Batman and Superman, right? You know, where she got like that, that redesign, yes. Um, and everyone got a bit more, like all the younger people got, especially got a bit more chibi, and she got like a little more sassy. But I kind of liked her as like sort of the a little more earnest, you know. Mm. So I was a, uh, I was very. That's definitely always been sort of my foundation point for Barbara Gordon is that sort of that first episode where she okay. pretends to be Batman because you know he won't sh- it's isn't it like he won't show up to do something for Jim Gordon so she's like F- oh I'm sorry I don't know if I'm allowed to swear but <laughs> if like, you swear I'll just bleep it out so just just know okay that, great yeah you've got whatever freedom you want so she's like screw it you know if Batman needs to show up I'm gonna show up as Batman and I just I always really liked that <laughs> So after writing Barbara for, you know, over a year, how would you describe her as a character? I think that Barbara is a character, you know, in a lot of ways, I really feel like Barbara Gordon more than anyone is the true heir to Batman. Um, Because I think that she is, she's one of the few characters that I think really has his same grounded mindset, where I, I think Barbara has a lot of control issues, good and bad. I think she's the kind of person that wants to have a plan A, plan B, plan C. Um, I think she's a really grounded character. Um, But at the same time, I think when you're sort of that goal-oriented that long, it can be kind of a hollow life, you know? And then Mm -hmm. actually that's one of the reasons why we sort of wanted to build up her life as Barbara Gordon, because I think it would be really, I don't know, is it weird to say that it it seemed like, I thought Bab. I thought Babs needed some friends. It oh, seems like, yeah. I mean, she had friends in Burnside and everything like that, but she in the comics she'd been increasingly pulling more and more just into the Batgirl persona, and mm-hmm. even her friends knew she was Batgirl. Mm-hmm. And I really liked it when she 
I wanted her to be able to have a life just as Babs um, instead of only as Batgirl. Mm. So how did the opportunity arrive to actually write this Batgirl comic and what directions did DC Editorial give you when you first started? Uh, well, this is actually, uh, I auditioned for probably, uh, I auditioned at one point and then didn't get the job. And then I auditioned again and it's probably about four months of work to try and convince them to let me write Babs. Mm. Um, and I tried to really build a really personal story. I, I, they, they knew they wanted to go back to Gotham. They knew they wanted sort of a, a darker tone, um, which is great because that's where I like to live. Um, and they wanted sort of to see if we could move somewhere between like Gail Simone's run and the Burnside run. So uh, I built up off of that. And and, the, and then that's good because that's where I kind of would have wanted to take Batgirl anyway. Um, and then I had some personal experience that I felt like I was able to color her with give a new perspective to things and that's where we started the first arc so what research did you do going into this on barbara gordon's character in the comics at least um i i remember i I did some kind of unusual research um in the sense that i i had to interview my mom um because i knew that i wanted to do something i I forgot where the idea originally came from but we knew it was early on that we were going to do something with uh Oh, that was it. Sorry. I feel very inarticulate. Um, (laughs) I knew that Babs was a character who really relied on her mind Mm -hmm. and being able to think her way out of situations. And in the last arc, her eidetic memory had been really played up to like superpower level. Um, And so I really wanted to knock her back on her heels. And so I was like, that's the place to go. And actually my, uh, my mom had suffered from a brain tumor um, before I was born and she had developed aphasia and short-term memory loss. And so with Babs, when, you know, grotesque attacks are implant, we want, I, I remember trying to talk to my mother and really try and drill down with, you know, what is it like to physically experience a seizure and to like experience, you know, aphasia for you. And so we kind of, Babs ends up, if you read the issues, but Babs ends up actually kind of sort of having, I called it visual aphasia Mm -hmm. where when she tries to remember what happens in the fight with grotesque, you see sort of like the symbols keep getting mixed up and all the clues are there, but they're kind of scrambled. Um, and like her line about like, uh, she has a seizure and she's like, why is everyone on the, like, why, why is my dad upset? Like my dad never yells, um, is actually like from like a story from my mom. And, And, and I remember trying to like talk to people, you know, who had suffered, um, you know, I was able to reach out to a consultant who uh, uses a wheelchair to try and get an idea of like, you know, what is that like? How is that perce- how is that perceived? I talked to people who are um, there's been some traumatic injuries in uh, my personal sphere. Um, sorry, I'm trying to be polite because I don't want to like drag other people's lives through this. Um, but I tried to reach out to people who had gone through similar things that I felt Babs had gone through mm. to try and piece together what their, what had happened to them and what their mindset was, and then see if I could p- take all of that and sort of synthesize it and put myself in Babs' shoes. Now, that's not to say that, you know, I guess because I wanted Babs to feel like a real person and not like 
an every person. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to portray her. I don't tend to write really aspirational stories. I tend to write really sort of um, this specific individual and how can they struggle to maintain, you know, their moral compass in an increasingly gray situation. So I really needed to nail down as much as I could who specifically my version of Barbara Gordon, based on what I knew the events of her life were like, like who was she, how would we put her back on her heels and how would she fight back? And so, yeah, so a lot of the research was that um, because I wanted to nail that um, to try and nail her mindset in life. And, you know, her relationship with her dad becomes like a huge issue and sort of um, get that right. And then, you know, because that's just so much more important than, you know, say the geography of Gotham. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I really respect that. I'm I'm happy to hear that you went out and, and did that rather than just thinking this is how I imagine it would be. That's something I really respect from Chuck Dixon on his run in Birds of Prey where he actually talked to people who were bound to wheelchairs and tried to get an idea of how they would live their life. So I'm, I'm, that, that blows my mind. I'm so thankful for you that you went out and did that. I'm sure a lot of people also listening to this are like, wow, she, she did her legwork, so good on you. Well, you know, you try. I mean, look, I got to say – in all fairness, you can only do so much, you know, you, you really, I'm sure there are things that we missed or we messed up or, you know, we just weren't thinking about or something like that, but you got to try and, cause it is comics and you only have so much time with the script, but it is important to me to at least do my level best. And I wanted to do my level best by this character because I know, um, you know, I mean, for a long time, Babs was sort of the only game in in town for for nerd ladies mm. um and so i want to do right by her all right thank you <laughs> well you're coming off of hope larson's run how did you plan on making Batgirl your own and now that you're at the end of your tenure do you feel like you accomplished what you initially set out to do i mean you could always do more and there are definitely stories that you want to tell that get pushed or changed or shifted um i think the thing that i really liked was I really wanted to make Bab's relationship with her dad feel realistic and feel more modern. You know, if you go back and read Batgirl Year One, it's great for its time, but, like, Jim Gordon has a line about, like, I wouldn't want my daughter to become a cop, basically, because, like, (laughs) girls shouldn't, because she's a girl. Sure. You know? And I was like, I don't know that, you know, yeah, like, I can see, like, that Jim Gordon saying that, but I don't think, like, 2019 Jim Gordon thinks that way. Mm. But then sort of like, but at the same time, like 2019 Jim Gordon still knows it's like crazy dangerous to be a cop in Gotham City. 2019 Jim Gordon probably feels terrible that his daughter got shot by the Joker in his house. Mm. You know, Uh, 2019 Jim Gordon is carrying around a lot of baggage and doesn't seem to be particularly great at uh, talking about his feelings. And I just kind of wanted to see where sort of that went. And I, I really feel like we did, were able to establish what, at least to me, felt like a good relationship that wasn't a perfect relationship. And that Jim Gordon felt like a good dad without being necessarily the the right kind of dad that Babs needed for at every moment in her life. Okay. You know, and I I really that was really special to me because I really wanted to give her 
I felt like there had been a lot of really good writing about Babs and her viewpoint, her viewpoint of the world, but I wanted her to feel like she really had a family mm-hmm. and that we really got to feel her connection both with Jim and her brother and sort of how complicated that is to to have that kind of, I mean, even if you take the bat part out of it, like that's a complicated, stressful family situation. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll get more, more into that yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, with issue 25, you got your feet wet because you wrote two of the, I think there are four total stories in that issue. Was that helpful? Was that just a good way as a writer to transition, not only from Hope Larson's run, but for you personally to transition into getting used to this character? Um, well, I actually had written 26 before I wrote 25. Oh, okay. Um, so I had already started to sort of get a feel for the character. I think it was really helpful in terms of crystallizing the tone because I really wanted one of the things that I think is a big deal for Babs. And one of the things that you'll sort of see crop up as a theme in the book over and over again is the idea of disposable people. Mm. Um, and you know, who, gets to get shot and then we don't see anything else about them and the story moves onward and why like why do we choose some people to get a whole you know rest of the issue or graphic novel or whatever it is to tell their story and not others um sort of and i I think that that's one of the interesting about babs is that babs is really sort of anti-disposable people Mm. like babs babs I wanted her to feel like a character because I think she is a character um, that more than anyone has a lot of follow through in the bat family. Um, There's a lot of, if you look back, I think through her history, I feel weird. I feel like I'm like writer explaining this to you, but obviously I feel like one of the, (laughs) well, because I know you know. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, but please not everyone knows. That's why I do this show. But I feel like one of the interesting things is if you look back through Batgirl's stories, she often has story arcs where she doesn't just save someone once, but that person actually gets integrated and stays in her network and mm-hmm. in her friend circle and whatever, like in sort of, you know, you see their progression as they go. Um, and so I thought that, that was a really sort of unique characteristics to, to Babs, that she's not someone that just forgets about people um and so writing that issue 25 which is about sort of the aftermath of um one of the issues that led into uh the batman catwoman wedding basically for those of you i guess quick sum up um the idea is, is that in one of the issues written in another comic uh joker like kills everyone at a wedding to attract batman's attention um, and our story is about uh, the funeral for the groom of the wedding, who you find out that Batgirl had a relationship with. Or, I mean, not not like a intimate relationship, but that she, had, she knew him from before and sort of her perspective on the aftermath of this. Um, so I felt like it was just a really nice chance to sort of crystallize what kind of stories we wanted to talk about and, uh, and, and also, to, you know, to, to set up a, what what kind of version of Babs we were going to write. Right, yeah. Well, final question that's in this intro, since he doesn't really pop up again. You did get to mention, at least, in that uh, crossover into the Batman-Catwoman non-wedding, 
is Dick Grayson, of course. And I just wondered if you wanted to use Dick Grayson more and it just wasn't it wasn't possible because of what happened to him and now he's rich or whatever he is. Rick, I guess. Uh, could you have used him more if you wanted to? Um, we had already planned out the first arc in advance of knowing that, uh, of, like, it, before I came on. Um, and I knew that I wouldn't want... I normally don't like to spotlight another character um, until a bit into my run because I feel like you, you want it's Batgirl, so I want to set up Batgirl. This is Batgirl's book. I don't want to become like Batgirl and Nightwing. Sure. Um, so I didn't really thought seriously about having a lot of Nightwing in the book. Uh, I will say that I'm personally Dick Babs forever. <gasps> and ma'am, I knew we'd be friends. Yes, I love them and. <laughs> I think that their theme song is Shut Up and Dance With Me. Oh. Um, and, uh, but, although I will say, I, I will say I can see some really cool relationships otherwise, but I, I don't know. They're just so, they're so perfect for each other. Although I would say, because my friend Jackson Colin wrote a great Nightwing run um, when he, well, I guess not Nightwing, because he was with Spyro all the time so I, I i will admit to being a little intimidated to tackling dick grayson um and making him as charming as he should be mm. oh boy well if only i guess we'll see what happens to them i do feel like they're sort of a ross and rachel that there will always be this back and forth and then in the end they'll finally be together i know <laughs> okay well today my little adventure was to actually read your entire run, which was actually really good because sometimes when you're doing issues a month, you lose little details. So running every reading everything in one sit down, like ties it all together. And it was an enjoyable ride, which is I can't say that about every writer that's been on Batgirl, unfortunately. So I've split this up into your different arcs. And I'll say this now that if you can't answer something or you don't feel comfortable doing it, you know, like with DC and everything, you can absolutely just say so and we'll move on. So sure. I sure. don't think I ask anything too scandalous. So, <laughs> But just wanted to let you know that that is absolutely a possibility. So arc one was, of course, Art of the Crime with grotesque returning, kind of. And you mentioned going back to this darker tone. And it was interesting. And it was actually one of the things that made me a little nervous because – Barbara is arguably one of the lighter characters in the DC universe and definitely in the Batman family. So how were you able to, was it difficult to find this middle ground between the darkness that you said earlier is kind of your niche and the light that Barbara normally portrays? I don't, it feels weird to say, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm sure someone out there is like, nah, you struggled. Um, but no, I don't, I, I guess just because I wanted the book to take a darker tone didn't mean I wanted her necessarily to take a darker tone. Okay. Um, she does get, I think, more intense and more focused because we're putting her in more intense situations. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, when some guy's like paint brushing people's blood, like right. you can't be cracking too many jokes. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, I, I like to think that she still feels like a, uh, a hopeful person. And I definitely didn't want her to, I didn't want her to become a grim, dark character. Mm. Um, I just wanted her to, especially since we were moving back into Gotham, I wanted it to feel like this is, you know, Gotham's Gotham's dark and mm. Gotham is, you know, the big leagues. And I, I felt like, um, even though I really liked the Burnside run, 
Burnside itself can sort of feel a little safe, a little separated from the action. And so having her sort of move, you know, at first sort of temporarily and then permanently move back to Gotham was really about sort of, okay, well now she's going to have to take, you know, you're leveling up. Like now you're, now you're back to being a small fish in a big pond. Um, so it was about sort of taking that, you know, that really strong core that she developed in Burnside and really trying to see if, if it would survive sort of the blast furnace of Gotham. Mm. Why grotesque? Why go back to this guy? Oh, grotesque. Um, (laughs) well, uh, I really like Gail Simone. Um, and so I thought it would be, I thought it would be kind of funny to, fridge a gail simone villain oh. um, <laughs> wow and although it didn't occur to me that i was literally fridging him until like halfway which technically that's not fridging because he's an antagonist blah blah blah, blah. Sure. um but i didn't realize that until i'd written it and that my my husband who's a big comics nerd was like did you put him in a fridge and i was like well yeah because he's dead and you don't want it to smell and he's like did you put gail simone's bad guy in a fridge and i was like oh i did well, I'm keeping it now. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there's a lot of practical reasons. He's like, he had powers that could be replicated without having abilities, the full face mask, although, but also like, he just seems like kind of the, the, the kind of guy that you should want to kick. Mm. Like, <laughs> and having someone who was sort of a more disposable villain and like someone we could take a new take on, I thought would be a really nice, um, nice little Easter egg for people who'd been long-term Batgirl fans Mm -hmm. without people who were just coming to the book feeling like, Oh my gosh, do I need to know a lot about this grotesque? You know, like who is this guy? Did you get any feedback from Gail Simone by any chance? Uh, I've got, she's been very, she's been very positive. Um, and if she's just being polite, she is, uh, more polite than uh than i am so okay (laughs) no she's she's very she was very sweet and when i found out i got the book i reached out to her and was like i hope i don't mess this up (laughs) she's like i'm sure you'll do great no she's been very supportive and i'm so so grateful (laughs) okay well gordon's don't give up is a mantra that we see throughout this particular arc and even later james jr will repeat it in issue 33 and uh my friends and i went to actually a batman conference at bowling green state university recently and donovan my friend was doing research for his and went back to like through barbara's career and it's been a while since i've been back there but in detective comics 488 jim actually says this gordon's don't give up to babs after she fails to be re-elected and i wondered if this is just happenstance or was this the inspiration for this mantra that we see what no i thought i came up with it (laughs) oh no now i feel bad that i've burst i felt so clever (laughs) no it's okay it's okay. Look, it's a very simple. It's it's alliterative. It's a good. Uh, it's a good. It's a good phrase. So you know what? Phrase. Go back, edit this, and we'll just say that yes, it was a deep <laughs> cut. Congratulations for finding it. I intended it all along. People <laughs> would not be surprised, honestly, because when you brought Cormorant out, I was like, "Whoa, this lady's doing her research." So they, I don't think they'd be surprised if you went back and you know found that. Yeah, although Cormorant was actually a uh, suggestion by my editor. Okay. Um, we were looking back, and she, um, Brittany, loves 
like bronze age Batgirl and mm. was able to point me to some really great resources in that area, okay. in that era. Uh, I'd wanted to do slash at some point too, oh, from that same story true, arc. Yep. Um, I didn't want to introduce them together cause that's felt hokey, but like uh, we ran out of time yeah. as is, but you know, I mean, Hey, comics are, I'm sure Batgirl will be here. Uh, and I'll make my way back to Gotham at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Back to sort of the darkness, I actually skipped one. With the uh, macabre crime scenes that you have, they're actually softened by the red coloring. And I wondered if this was intentional direction by you or it was more a lead uh, by Paul Pelletier just to soften sort of the darkness and, and how gruesome it would be so that you can't really tell necessarily what's blood since everything's washed out with red. Um. It was definitely a concern from editorial. It's funny. Editorial was like, get super dark. And I was like, let's paint in blood. And they're like, a little too dark. <laughs> um, so there, that was sort of a concern. But I think actually our colorist, I think Jordy came up with the idea of sort of making all the flashbacks red, like all in different tones of red. Or maybe I'm totally forgetting it. I do have to admit that I have a two-year-old now. So I have no memory of anything that's not essential. Okay. Um, but yeah, but I, I do know that the logic behind it was the idea that if we put everything in sort of tones of red, it wouldn't be as, you know, obvious mm-hmm. that uh, it wouldn't look as gory. Yeah, which which I think works. So you are able to sort of toe that line of, of the darkness there, but not get so dark that we're, we, we shouldn't have it in there because it's a back row book. So I think it, it does a good job. Yeah, no, I mean, the art team has been amazing. And I was, I was so lucky to have Paul and Norm and Jordy and and just, um, which I guess I still have them because we're still working on 36. Um, But they've just been so amazing. and, And they've pushed me as a writer. And, you know, we started, I started a whole new script style for Paul. So, um, like, yeah, it's been, it's been great. I feel like we've all sort of hopefully it made each other like level up. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, that was something that I was going to mention in your, in the second arc, but since you brought it up, you, yeah, you changed your writing style and, and you put this on Twitter and I was pretty astounded by this mainly because uh, I feel like writers sort of just, you know, whatever is working for them at the time that they're, they're doing it, but you realize that there was a better way for both of you. Have you received feedback? Has it been mostly positive in, in you doing this? Um, you know, I had, it's funny cause I put it on Twitter because I thought it would be an interesting thing. Um, I have a lot of friends who are comic reviewers and I feel like they would have wanted to know like, Oh, you switch writing style. You know, it just, it'd be an interesting thing to see like, Hey, if this is the same team, the same character, this was written one way, this is when the other way, how does it look different? Mm. Like just an, an interesting tidbit for them to know. Um, I don't, I haven't gotten a lot of feedback in that particular from the outside. Um, but from the inside, it, it really worked. So, yeah. um, but yeah, no, it's, well, it, it, it was sort of a thing where I, I wrote the first arc full script cause that's how I was used to working. And Paul did such a great job and he was talking about how, you know, he was having to do like the motorcycle chases and things like that that were a little out of his comfort zone. And he was really bringing the acting. Cause I, the one thing I was really terrified of, or that I'm always kind of terrified of is that the characters won't have enough acting. Um, like my stories just don't function with a, a stoic face. Uh, and I asked him at the end of the arc, I was like, you know, 
you did such a great job. Is there anything that I can do for you? And he mentioned that he'd gotten to work on one other project, Marvel style, or well, I don't think DC likes me calling it Marvel style, but honestly, that's what you call it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that, that had been really creatively fulfilling for him. And I was like, well, I've, I've never done it, but, uh, let's give it a shot. And I started, you know, we started working on it and, uh, there, there were some bumps along the way, but in general, I felt like it was just a super great moment of growth for both of us. I, I mean, I, I feel like his layouts got so much more interesting and how the art interacted just panel to panel with itself to tell a story got really interesting. And then as a writer who tends to be kind of wordy, having to rewrite to fit this new panel dynamic um, really kind of forced me to, I think, pick and choose my words a lot more carefully and Mm. make sure that that I wasn't just putting in balloon after balloon, but after balloon. Cause I mean, the ironic thing is that we both, it was a lot more work for both of us. Um, <laughs> but I think we really did get a better product and a more integrated product by, by doing that. And we, we kept doing it. So hopefully people agree. Yeah, no, you know, as an outside opinion and that particular issue, I guess the first of, I had a, co-host on and we both agreed that we just really respected that you had done this and that you were willing to change something and and just work better or more alongside you know your artist creatively so um i i just respect that you that you did that and put that out there and tried something that was out of your comfort zone yeah i mean it's it's certainly out of my comfort zone. It's really hard. Well, cause you, I'm so used to seeing everything in my mind and explaining out every little detail. And then like the first issue, like, you know, you're just describing the broad strokes and actually I would like super overwrite it. Cause I'd be like, well, this is what she's feeling and this is how she feels about him. And so in this scene, their feelings shift from this to this to this. And Paul's like, I can't draw all of this. And I'm like, I know you can't draw all of this, but I want to make sure I have the right face. So I'm sure I, I'm sure the first script was actually a real headache for him, but mm. he was very sweet about it. Um, but yeah, I just didn't, as soon as I saw what he could do, uh, letting him take the reins, it was like, okay, great. You know, I mean, you lose some of that control, but you, I think you, you gain a new perspective and little things he'd add like Batgirl, um, throwing a remote at Cormor, like hitting him in the right. head with a remote yep. control. Like, I love that. Like mm-hmm. did not think of that at all. Um, did not have that at all. Some of the ways the panels would interact with each other. And she like the, the multi shot of her parkouring over Gotham to work Mm -hmm. um, was great. I never remember to actually leave a splash page or like a big splash page. Cause I'm always like more panels, more panels, but his splash pages are beautiful. And so it's been, it's funny. I, 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 like I said earlier, I think try and think of comics as a haiku, but I really feel like, this experience has taught me that no, I really can open them up more. You know, there can, there can be a thought as a, as a comic book writer that more panels, more words equals more value. Mm. Um, but I really think letting the art breathe. And now I'm starting to think that like more, the right amount of words in the right place, that synthesis makes real value in comics and not just, you know, regardless of how fast or slow you finish the book. Right. Keeping in the art, 
do you or even Paul, did you like the gray costume or would you have gone back to the Burnside leather and leggings uh, had you the choice? Oh, I didn't really think about it because I knew right off the bat that we were going to change the costume. I was just happy they let us hold off on changing the costume until we could find a place in story for it to make sense. Um, But I tend not to hypothetical too much in comics. So I do think that it's a it's a fun design and like especially the little backpack and Mm -hmm. like the the logo becoming the straps i do the one thing that sucks though is that uh i wish that we were more consistent early on some of the variant covers it makes her look like she's got a domino mask instead of a full cowl mm. um and her costume actually is a that mask links up into a cowl into her ears so her ears aren't just you know because i've seen some of them and they're beautiful they're beautiful variant covers and there's no way for them to know um but it's like no they're not just clipped to her head like <laughs> there is a cowl thing i don't know why that matters to me but it does so yeah it does look like her hair overwhelms the the cowl on some of the the yeah yeah well because she's got the long red hair you know so a lot of a lot in a lot of the shots you can't tell the difference but i guess for cosplayers out there if you're looking to build the current batgirl costume it is an interlocked mask and cowl um (laughs) well final question on this first arc as you mentioned before, of course, Babs has some physical setbacks connected to her chip, and it's something that your predecessors also went to. And I just wondered, you know, talking to you, what is it about this particular story point that makes it so compelling for writers? And if you'll forgive the pun, why won't DC just pull the trigger and take her legs again? Oh, wow. Really? Pull the trigger? I Wait. said forgive the <laughs> pun. <laughs> That's got to be the like a comic equivalent of no offense, but oh um, my goodness! Okay, um, look, I don't want to talk about will they, won't they, why they, won't they about Oracle and the chair. Um, that decision is made really clear to me that okay. it was not going to happen in our run. Okay, um, it was really interesting to me, like I said, because I had kind of this personal angle to start with, mm-hmm. where what would it be like to to put that a little bit in jeopardy too. I kind of couldn't mess with the chip. I personally at the time was like, well, if we're messing with the chip in her mind, wouldn't that also mess with the rest of her? Like, um, unless we literally did some kind of like, I don't know, but that, that, that was the choice that I made. Um, but it was more of a tertiary thing of wanting to go after Babs's brain. Um, and that would also be part of the package than trying to, t- I really tried to like, especially in early press be like i'm not teasing the readers that she's going to go back to the chair it's going to be oracle um i think also i just wanted it's no one's fault when you have to do sometimes you have to do really fast transitions Mm. but when you do a really fast transition and a character goes from not being able to walk to sort of being able to walk really quickly i felt like there was still story there and space there to talk about the emotions of that and what does that do um to you psychologically, to your relationships, when you quote unquote, like get fixed, you know? Um, because then it does cast a lot of other things. It's like, well, I wasn't, what do you mean? Like I'm fixed now, you know, like how did that mess with Babs? Um, and I know that like talking to people, is, it's like one of the hardest things to combat when you have, from my research, one of the hardest things to combat if you have any kind of disability is uncertainty. Mm. You know, will I be better tomorrow? Won't I be better tomorrow? It's kind of like if you know 
okay, I'm stable or things are only going to get worse or things are only going to get better. Like that is something that people can plan for. And especially if you're a plan based individual with it, which I think Babs is having like, I might, or I might not, I don't know. It's like, that's hard to deal with. You know, that's really that uncertainty. And so that was something that I thought was um, available for exploration. Um, And of course it's, and like I said, I want to put like fixed in quotes because, you know, that's sort of the point of the story is, is Babs, you know, I, I don't want to feel like I need to, I needed to get fixed, but obviously I wasn't going to, but for her, you know, especially because she was had such a physical life, it's not like she was going to pass up on the opportunity to walk again. Right. Um, but it makes a lot of complicated emotions because I don't think that, I mean, I think, I'm sure initially it was really hard for her when she was in the chair because you just don't, you don't get shot in the spine and assaulted by the Joker, like, and just brush that off the next mm-hmm. day. Like, that's not a thing, you know, that's a violent, sudden, traumatic injury, Um but I think she got to a place and for a really long time in the comics, she was at a place where she was at peace with herself and she had peace with herself. Um, and it's just interesting that when that situation changed, how does that change your point of view on everything that happened before it or how doesn't it, or how does it change the way people talk about what happened before it? Um, and what does that make you feel? And that was something I tried to, I thought was worth that. I thought there were still stories there. And so I went after them. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, your second arc was called Old Enemies, and we already talked about Cormorant and and where you got that idea. What made you want to use Jason Bard in this arc as well? Oh, yeah. Well, I knew he was a character floating around, and I really liked the idea that Jason Bard, especially using a cane, is a very physical, immediate reminder of a time in Babs's life where she was really losing control. Mm. And like I said, I think Babs is a character all about control. And yes, I know that technically Red Hood is the one that dropped him the time that he, you know, almost splatted. And that's what in theory lost, but she'd been dropping him off a building all night. So I don't think Babs makes that distinction. Um, And I thought that was also, he's a character that in Batman Eternal um, goes through a real redemption arc. And we've been playing ever since the annual with this idea of, redemption and who deserves redemption and who doesn't deserve this redemption. And so it became this really interesting thing of like what happens when Jason Bard shows up and he is trying to redeem himself. Batgirl's all about redemption. Um, You know, we've seen her like she like bought poison Ivy's company like to, to help her out. And she's offered a lot of characters uh, chances at redemption or at least chances at empathy. And so it's like, okay, but this is also the guy that tried to screw your dad over. Like this is the guy that got your dad put in prison. Um, And also this guy is a walking reminder of the time you lost control and your life is sort of all about keeping control. So, yeah. So I thought it was really nice and, and and it kind of makes things worse because as far as Jason Bard knows, of course he doesn't know that Babs is Batgirl, but he does know that she's Jim Gordon's daughter. Mm. And so it's very important to James, Jason, or sorry, that's the one problem with having a James and a Jason on the same <laughs> book. Um, there is a very, it's very important to Jason to make good by Babs, which of course makes it harder for Babs. 
knows he's being extra nice to her, which is not what she wants. Mm -hmm. So that was just ended up being a really great dynamic of like, the more he's nice to her, the more guilty she feels. So the more she's mean to him, but she doesn't want to be mean to him, you know, but the more she's mean to him, the more he's like, well, I just better be nicer and prove myself. Right. Well, you just answered one of the questions I had, which was the fact that I have a sneaking suspicion that Jason actually knew she was Batgirl because of some of the weird stuff he did, like invite her to different events when clearly she shouldn't have been there as an intern, but you just told or volunteer, but you just said that he doesn't. So, yeah, I do not. In my mind, he doesn't know she's Batgirl. He's trying to make good by her because. He gives her sort of this weird special treatment because he's trying to sort of make up for the fact that he screwed over her dad. And I think because she's she's her being with an an upcoming issue, we'll get into this more, but her working for Alejo, especially when Jim Gordon doesn't like Alejo, Mm -hmm. I think strikes a lot of chords with him about like, you know, coming out of the shadows and being your own person and blah, 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 blah. So, um yeah, but I don't think he's like winking and nudging at her with Batgirl because <laughs> ironically, I don't think he really cares about impressing Batgirl very much. Okay. <laughs> Which is very different from his silver and bronze age appearances when they were yes. partners. So, yes, exactly. Yep. Well, I didn't say that we can't go in that direction. Oh, I mean, interesting. Okay. I'm just starting in a place. Okay, okay. Whose side are you on in the Jason Backroll debate regarding Cormoran's death in that particular issue? Oh, well, remember that my job is <laughs> to hurt fictional heroes for a living. Okay. So I am very <laughs> much. Sick. I know. It, it really is awful. It's like, what do you do all day? Well, I think of ways to hurt Backroll. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, we're not good people. Um, but. Uh, so I am very much with Jason that that the practical solution is to shoot the guy. Mm. Um, in fact, in the original script, uh, there's no like originally there wasn't a line where he was like, I'm going to kill her. Like Jason, just as soon as he has the shot, just took it. Right. Um, but I think that DC didn't kind of want Jason to just shoot a dude. Mm. Um I wanted Jason to just shoot a dude, but um, they were probably right about that from like a rating standpoint. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but uh, I, I'm I'm much on Jason's side. I will also say though, as for myself, it's an extremely patronizing move to assume that Batgirl isn't going to be able to handle this situation. Mm. Um, he's making he's basically assuming that she's incompetent, right. and or at least that his judgment is more sound than hers. Um, and Hey, don't we all do that all the time? Um, but I can definitely see where, uh, I, I think he made the right call, but he also made the jerk call, um, and also the murder call. So (laughs) morally I'm with Babs, but practically eh, I'm with him. (laughs) Okay. So perhaps the most important question that I'll ask this entire time is how on earth has Barbara not been fired? At Alejo's office. <laughs> that is true. She is kind of terrible at her job. Isn't yes. She? Well, I will say that she has an eidetic memory and she's a literal tech genius. Okay. So if she was running your IT department, I'm sure she could do that. Like with one and your social media, she could probably do that with one hand tied behind her back. Okay. So I think she skates out a lot better 
than in other people's eyes than uh, she does in ours. I would also say, as cynical as it is, it looks very good to have the police commissioner's daughter volunteer oh. for your campaign. Okay. Um, so I'm, I, I want Alejo to be a good person, but we've seen that she is not immune to the optics of a situation. Mm-hmm. She's not a knight in shining armor. And I think that, yeah, especially when the police commissioner is like, I don't like you having the police commissioner's daughter be like, I do like you is a, uh, was a, is a useful thing. Mm. Is Izzy a secret villain? Not in the issues that I'm going... <laughs> not in my run. Okay, I just want Although now I feel like I should text Cecil and be like, hey, heads up, <laughs> make Izzy a secret villain. Just some of her facial expressions and her in the background, and I just feel like there's something up with Izzy. But Well, I just wanted her... But also remember, too, is that we know that Batgirl is not a flaky, you know, fly-by-night, fair-weather fan. Sure. But Izzy doesn't know that. Yeah. Like, she doesn't know she's not showing up because she's Batgirl. As far as she knows, Babs is just, you know, wandering in and out, the police commissioner's daughter, and being kind of a swanny character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would have to say, if I were Izzy, I would not like Babs. <laughs> No. I mean, she gets annoyed that Jason invited her to places she shouldn't be. And I don't also Barbara came up with the ridiculous excuse that she got sick with food poisoning from the shrimp puffs. But in my mind, I thought if she got sick, wouldn't everybody get sick from the shrimp puffs? Yeah. But Izzy just is like, okay, okay. I always, well, I think, I think, I think a I think at one version of the script, I was going to have her just be like, I was making like, or Izzy was going to be like, you were just making out with one of the waiters. Like, first of all, you shouldn't be eating the damn shrimp puffs because sure. you're, it's not your event. Second of all, we all know that you were just making out with one of the waiters or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yes, that is a terrible excuse. It, yeah. Well, she got away with it. So I guess that's all that counts. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, the one thing I did like about their relationship was I didn't want them. To, I wanted Izzy to be a bit of an antagonist Mm. to Babs without being a bad guy. Like, you know, she does, they do have a moment when she thinks like, oh yeah, Babs was hiding because she has PTSD because there was a bunch of gunshots that just went off, you know, like she's not heartless with Babs. And I wanted, I just wanted them to, I feel like in comics, it's either in a lot of media, it's if there are two girls, especially in a work environment, they're either besties for life instantly or they're at each other's throats constantly Mm. and i kind of just wanted her to feel a little more real and that their their friendship would grow over time okay so i just wanted to make her i i I like i like to think that izzy's uh izzy's got a valid point and uh it's complicated yeah and maybe she'll remain in barbara's little cast of characters well we'll see i hope so i like her (laughs) Well, another important detail in Barbara's history, of course, is her term as a congresswoman. And were you at all leading towards maybe Barbara running for office herself? Or was any of this storyline meant to reference her having done so in the past? Well, it is one of the reasons because we had um, we had talked about giving her, you know, a life outside of Batgirl and a life outside of GCE um, because she kind of moved away from Gordon Clean Energy a bit. Um, and so we're trying to think like, you know, librarian again, or full-time student. I I didn't want her to be a full-time student again, because it felt 
a little young, like, even though, I mean, heck, my sister's still going for her PhD. I know that can be a long road, but, um, and, and when I remembered and read, read up on like her being a congressperson, I was like, oh, well, she should work at a, at a congressional thing. It seemed like a nice way of, I was like, you know, nothing's more dangerous. I mean, there's nowhere more dangerous to be political than Gotham. Like, I imagine that's, that's just a, uh, a, it seemed like a great intersection for the two sides of her life and like a nice reference. And I mean, heck yeah, sure. I mean, if I had had 10 years, would I have made Babs a congresswoman? Probably mm-hmm. like that would have been neat, but, uh, I kind of didn't think that I'd get 10 years. Um, <laughs> so I at least wanted to give her the idea of someday she could be. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, uh, we were all, well, my little friend group and I were all hoping that maybe something would happen to Alejo and then Babs would step in and, and take that seat like she did for her father way back when. Oh, yeah. So. Wow, then Izzy would be really pissed. <laughs> she <laughs> sure would. Oh, then she'd have I to work for Babs. Staff, I had the IT. <laughs> oh, man, man. Well, last question is about the Cormorant. I he's got an interesting past with Barbara, which I'm sure you probably uh, did your research on just the fact that he was actually the first person to shoot her. And he's also one of the reasons where or why she started to not trust herself and, and feel like it's time to lay down the cowl. And she ended up retiring in the 1988 special. But here we've got a character that that's sort of wiped clean. Their history is not there. You did have the freedom to use that since Rebirth sort of uh, allows you to dip back into that history. Did you have the option to bring that history intact and, oh, they knew each other? Or were you told, like, this is uh, just a new, a new slate tabula rasa with Cormorant? I mean, I, I didn't even think about it. I knew I was going to have to reimagine the character just from, like, his original costume and he kind of was going to need like a redesign from the ground up. Um, and even like, why the heck is he called Cormorant? Um, but so, so I already figured he was going to have to get redesigned and, and retcon was important to me to just try and give him that, uh, that mindset and that I'd be able to leverage the fact that, you know, the hardcore fans knew that, you know, he was the, he was in the, like who killed that girl arc. Right. Um, so that he would seem like more of a threat in, in our arc. Um, when really, of course we know that someone was pulling his strings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I hadn't thought about like giving them like a long detailed past. In fact, it kind of, it was, it was more important to me that he be a little bit more the leading edge for other villains, um, for the terrible trio. Mm, right. Um, and that he was going to be the start of that mystery. Um, than that he was going to be, you know, the big bad himself. Because ultimately, you know, whenever the big bad is a big-ass dude in a suit with a gun, it's never quite as fun to just punch someone than to, like, dig down to whoever is pulling their strings. Right. Yeah. Especially because, hey, like, you know, I I think that Batgirl is fun when she's a detective. And so you got to give some mysteries. Yes. That's actually something I've really appreciated in your run, and I just recently read, I guess it'd be 35, the Turbo Trio Part 1 that just came out, and I just thought, look at all this detectiving that she's got going on. So I, I really like that because it's been a long time. I, I feel like we don't get it a lot, so I'm, I'm appreciative when we get to see that. It is hard to write. <laughs> 
But no, I always feel like the bats should be detectiving sure. like yeah. as much as possible, as much as they will let me get away with it. Yeah. Uh, and and I really wanted her, even though she has a really high tech background and we use the high tech, I wanted it to still feel like she's smart and she's solving the mystery by using her intellect to pull the pieces together, not just using technology to find the answer for her. Mm. Gotcha. Well, on to our final arena, which arena it is. It, talking about James Sr. and Jr., focusing more on Jr., but I did have a couple questions just with her father. I always felt like this is the most stable relationship in the DCU, that of Barbara and her father, but you created some tension between the two. Uh, you talked a little bit about your plans for that and, and why you know, going into that and, and what their relationship is like, will they be reconciled by the end of your run? Not fully. Okay. Um, because reasons. Okay. That's but, fine. I understand. <laughs> but I do think it would really surprise me if in the long term, I don't think Babs hates her dad. Like he's doing his best. She's doing her best. It would surprise me in the long term if they didn't reconcile. Mm-hmm. I'd be sad as a fan. Yeah. But although Cecil, if you're listening to this, you do not have to make me happy as a fan. <laughs> you go twist that knife all you want. Oh okay. <laughs> like, do you think he was in the wrong with what he did in regards to James not telling her number one and number two, I thought that the even greater betrayal was the fact that he told James Jr. to go after Barbara when she ran down into the alley. I think he, I don't know. And, you know, it's funny when I was writing that, I was really thinking about like, you know, like I mentioned earlier that I've got a two year old and there's nothing like finally having a kid to make you realize that you have no idea what you're doing, but that you would absolutely die for them at like the drop of a hat. And so it really made me empathize with James or, you know, or sorry, not James Gordon senior mm. made me emphasize with Jim Gordon that like, what would you do if you had two kids and you loved them? And one of them was a monster, like, and hurt the other. Like, I just don't even know. There is, in, in, as a, I guess, as a writer, I think he made the wrong decision. But as a parent, I hope for the, the our readers who were parents, it's like, we really try to sell the idea that it's like, there, there's no good option. You can't stop loving your kids. Like, you, you just can't. And so this was just sort of the, I, I as a parent, I think he sort of, it's maybe not the smartest solution, but it was the simplest solution. Because how could you not – you can't throw away your kids. Mm. You can't throw away your kids. But if you tell – what are you going to do? Tell Babs that her – if it doesn't work out, like that her brother's out there, or even if it does, that he's she's going to not feel safe. Like ironically, it's another paternalistic decision. But when you're literally someone's father, um, it makes a lot more sense. Mm. <laughs> um. And I think that him telling James to go after her was basically, it was the classic parent move of like, you two have to reconcile. Oh, sure. Um, So, which again, possibly not the safest decision. He's definitely showing a lot of trust in James at that point, but, but we're trying. Yeah. I will say that while I didn't like this scene, like what was happening in it, that it was really well choreographed there 
confrontation in front of the cop car and how the coloring switched from red to blue and you know like it 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 zooms in on their face and then pulls out it's it's just really well done both with you and paul working together oh yeah it's super cool oh my god and it's a it's a and and you're not supposed to like the same like (laughs) i'm glad well success yes yeah no we wrote it because like you're on babs's side and he's a dick like and this was not the thing to do and how could you not do this and you know but i think we also as the readers have the advantage of being i don't think that jim gordon thinks of his daughter as weak or anything like that but jim gordon doesn't know his daughter is back mm. and i think if jim gordon knew his daughter was back he would have a different opinion in that scene or in that decision that he made, which was not in that scene, but was many scenes earlier, because it's very different from knowing, you know, my kid's an adult and they're, you know, intelligent and capable and they've taken martial arts too. My kid is a vigilante who routinely goes out and fights crime. Like that's just a different level of, I don't know any vigilantes, um, but that's, that's a different level of things. (laughs) Do you do you think this is realistic that Jim doesn't know his own daughter is Batgirl because you said you're a parent now and you're going to watch mm-hmm. your child grow up and you think that if your child had that wide open mask and is right in front of you that you wouldn't recognize? I mean, it's better than uh, it's better than a pair of glasses. So, <laughs> touche. Okay. <laughs> There are some things that you just and and I I thought about it of like okay do we not have them interact at all uh, because she's got such a small mask right. uh, but I guess I wanted the story more and I was like there have been crazier costumes like so let's just go for it yep it's definitely you, do you have to I recognize that yes we were asking you to suspend a bit of disbelief on the other hand. Um, She's in a bat suit fighting crime, so you're already suspending right. a little bit of disbelief. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let, let's get this done. It's James Jr. Batgirl writers like to go back to James Jr. What is it about this character that is so compelling and makes writers want to create more stories with him in it? It's the classic sort of Cain and Abel story. Mm. Um, who's the rightful heir to Jim Gordon? He's got that, especially the way Elena draws him with the glasses flashing and right. that scar. And he's her, you know, he's any chance I can do to have any walking failure of Babs. Like, I mean, she knifed him in the eye. Like sure that's not, <laughs> that's, that can't be a moment she's proud of. Um, I don't know that she's exactly ashamed of it, but she's not proud of it. And I mean, that's, and also she doesn't have a huge, completely independent rogues gallery where no one's derivative of, and when you, no one's, or a version of another villain, um, but someone who is so closely just tied to her. Uh, And I figured if I was going to write about the dad, I'd write about the brother too. Gotcha. Okay, makes sense. Would you say James Jr. is Barbara's arch nemesis? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I had my way, all the time. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And now I did say Barbara. I didn't say Batgirl. Oh, it's true. Then I actually, then no. Okay. So you think Batgirl? In a weird way, 
I guess in a weird way, I think, I think James loves his sister. I think James is a very damaged individual. And I think that, I think in a weird way, the worst thing that could ever happen to Babs would be James Jr. wanting to like, quote unquote, help out. Like, that would just be terrible. Mm. I don't know what kind of, I don't know what, like, let me make up for this looks like when your brother is like worse than Dexter. Oh, yeah, that that's probably accurate. Well, at least Dexter, wasn't he doing things for the, well, he was going after serial killers, wasn't he? Even though he himself was a serial killer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, issue 33, want to spend just a couple questions on it. We're basically uh, near the end here. Uh, it was unsettling in many regards, the strongest of which I would say would be Barbara's actions and her characterization there. Were you at all hesitant or worried in how you wrote her that fans might be upset? Oh, um... When you say, oh, like that, it makes me think that you didn't even consider it and now I brought up a bad thing. I know. No, I hope. Oh, I hope people weren't too upset. I guess it's just he's in my mind. It's like he's her Joker. Like mm-hmm. he always pushes her to the edge. You know, mm-hmm. he's he. If anyone is always, if anyone is going to push her to the edge or make her lose control or get her right up to that line, it's him. You know, and I I I enjoy stressing Barbara Gordon out. Yes, as as we've established. <laughs> um so yes, I will point out that uh I don't think we have her do anything that Batman doesn't do fairly regularly. Oh, I agree. And, I agree. Um so it's it's much more aggressive. I wanted her to get much more aggressive than she normally gets to show that like James is special and James gets under her skin. Um but I didn't want her to I wanted to keep her in the sort of like bat moral sphere Mm. um so that you could you know you could rationalize and she could rationalize and it's like well like i said like it's batman does this kind of stuff maybe i'm not that bad maybe i am that bad Mm. like it's way worse than i normally am so yeah Yeah. i think i feel like barbara should never get to the level of batman though so i think that is like isn't it weird it's (laughs) it's weirdly more uncomfortable to watch babs do it because she's babs right like because she doesn't go that far Mm -hmm. because she always thinks her way out of the problem and so to to see for some reason to see her use like brute intimidation is is upsetting right yeah and especially the last one with the the parole officer you know basically an officer of the law and then he's saying please don't hurt me and it snaps her out of it that yikes i i think i went too far yeah, well, and let's also give props to Elena for, I mean, like, that upside-down tear was, yes. oh, my God, yeah. chef's kiss so on that. Yep. Um, but, yeah, no, she draws great messed-up people. <laughs> <laughs> she draws such messed-up people. And I feel terrible because I knew that she was great at that because I, I loved her in Suicide Risk. And so I, when we were writing the annual, I was like, can we get Elena? Can we get Elena? Um, and so she must just think I'm crazy because I'm like, Elena's good at messed up people. So I'm going to give her some really messed up situations. Oh my. Um, Hopefully she put that on her resume that she can draw messed up people really well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's on her business card. Oh, um, <laughs> there you go. Well, there's a moment where James is – It's. Um, 
in their apartment, this is the scene I want to focus on here, where James is, he's humble, he's in this posture of supplication, but Batgirl just hits him. Can we be on her side on this? Yeah, I mean, he stabbed her in the legs. The, he like, yep. like, and also, he, I, I mean, I think in that moment, it's weird, because I'm a writer, so I'm always going to play both sides of the fence. Um, he is too emotionally naive to realize what he's doing, but he's basically kind of trying to cop out, you know? It's not all better now because he feels bad. Like, nuts to him for feeling bad. She's felt bad this whole time, and now he's like, oh, I feel bad. Like, now you can't be mad. In in a weird way, I don't think he intentionally is doing this. Intentionally, he's just trying to, you know, all this this feeling stuff is new for him, and he wants to build a bridge with his sister, but it's like, you got to realize there's a heck of a lot of water under that bridge, man. And going for the forgiveness angle in a weird way feels like he's trying to undercut her anger Mm -hmm. as if her anger is not legitimate. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like I would have punched him. Okay. There's also a moment where he feels like she's going to kill him. But he says that he, if it's going to happen, he wants Barbara to kill him and not Batgirl. And there's actually a silhouetted shot of Barbara Batgirl taking off her mask, implying consideration of his murder. Now, this was a bold, bold decision. So I would very much like you to explain your thought process here. (laughs) No. What? You're not going to explain what you were thinking? Sorry, man. It's too oh. bold a decision. Oh like heavens. you have to decide yourself what she's thinking in that moment, okay. how long that moment lasted. That's 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 your box to to open. <laughs> of all the questions that you could deny answering, it's that one you chose. Okay, okay, that's fair. Can James be redeemed? You talked about redemption before. Do you think this character is possible for him to be redeemed? I hope not. Mm, um, interesting. I mean, Magneto is a good guy half the time now. So I guess, you know, what do you like in Transformers? Megatron became an Autobot. Oh. So, I mean, you never say never in comics, but um, I think he's a much more interesting character. Irredeemed. I think that especially I don't necessarily feel comfortable with him being redeemed via medication, um, especially so quickly. That's that's my only that, that's just a personal thing with me though that's taster's choice on that, um, but more than anything I just feel like there's just so much more story to be had with bad James than good James, mm. so don't throw away that resource. Gotcha. Well, the end of that particular issue does have sort of dark foreshadowing, anyways, with the man who the Batman who laughs. And you know, in silhouette over him. So I guess there's always that potential. You left it open for future stories. Yes, yes. Where do you see Babs and James going next? If you were to keep writing. Well, the important thing to say is that I'm not. Um, so, <laughs> so the political thing to say would be wherever DC decides to have them go next. Okay. Um, I try not to get uh, too f- much farther down the road. Uh, than I have to on this kind of thing because I mean heck at the very best you never know like 20 years from now or something we could write that story 
Yeah, that's true. You could come back. Well, to wrap up, of course, we're on your, your final arc with the Terrible Trio, and this is also connecting to the Cormorant and Alejo arc. Is there, well, can you tease anything, the, the final couple issues you've got coming out? Oh, man. Uh, you get to finally find out what's in that backpack. Oh, okay. <laughs> we finally revealed it. I've known what's in that backpack for so long. Wow. And we finally revealed it and i'm like it's such a silly thing because like even in the it's not like in the moment she's like and now this is what's in it but like i've just seen so many things where people are like what is in the backpack why does she have that little backpack what's that little bag and i'm like yes we're gonna do it well, it's not a compact <laughs> and lipstick is it it is it re- it is it's um, going back the to last the issue pouch. is yeah exactly last issue is just a date oh um oh, jason I didn't say who, uh, <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it, it gets, I, I'm, I'm very happy with how the last arc is turning out because I get to do messed up things. There's a lot of great sort of super awkward moments. Cause I love writing awkward moments. Um, and yeah, I think uh, hopefully the, uh, the readers like it too. If you, were to continue, is there a story that you would really like to tell? If you were to circle back around, you know, 10 years from now? I really do think at, at a certain point, there's so many issues with James talking about how he's his father's son and trying to get his father's attention. I really do think that at some point there's got to be sort of a who's the rightful heir of Jim Gordon, like duke out between him and Babs. Um, so that would be really interesting. And I don't know. I guess now that you've said it, her being in Congress would be kind of fun. Mm. At least seeing back road goes to Washington. Yes. Although I always do feel like then it's funny because I just said like, look the domino mask. Like, don't worry too much about it. Um, but in my mind, I'm always like, if Batgirl shows up at Washington the same time that right. Babs is in Washington, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that too suspicious? But but see, I don't have to write that. So there you go. So finally, what are your plans for the future in writing and how can fans continue to support you? Oh, thanks. Um, I am working on a creator-owned, which will hopefully get announced, I think, by June, they said. We'll see. Um, And I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm also writing a lot of television right now. Um, some very cool projects uh, that will be coming out. It feels weird to say because it's animations. Yeah. It feels weird to say because like animation takes a couple of years. Uh, so ironically, if you guys would like to see more of my stuff, you can see the stuff I wrote uh, a year and a half ago because Guardians of the Galaxy has come back for the second half of its animated season. And it is super fun. We did this arc um, especially if you guys are looking it up online, we did an arc called the Black Vortex where we got to do all the Guardians in different oh. animation styles. And we did a riff with like Drax as like Spider Man, but like old school, like Peter Parker um, in like four color comics. That's really fun. And Gamora as like a sort of Disney princess look. It, it, was, it was a blast to work on. Very cool. So, yeah, look for that and uh, just look for your name on some comics so it can continue to support you. Yeah, and you can always follow me on Twitter. My uh, tag is just my name, 
at Marigold Scott. And uh, we also put out a monthly newsletter, which is late right now because my new job, but I'm totally going to post it as soon as I can. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your, your motherhood and your wifehood and, and talking about Barbara and your run. And uh, just know that I really enjoyed your run. I, there may have been times where I disagreed with what Barbara Gordon was doing, but it, it, the writing never let me down. And I appreciate that. I feel like you understood her character, which I can't say about every writer that I've read. So just thank you very much from a diehard Barbara Gordon fan. You know, I got to say that's that is the best kind of thing as a writer to hear. If I can make you, even if you don't agree with the choices, feel like a character might make those choices like that's that's awesome. Thank you so much for saying that. And thanks for staying up. Oh, my, you know, it's only 1230. It's fine. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. well, thank you again. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to BackgirlToOracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at BackgirlToOracle. And follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Be sure to support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And stay tuned later in the month for a regular episode featuring some Birds of Prey issues. But until then, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>